You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. This morning, I have the privilege of introducing Marty Doffel-Smith. Marty is the executive pastor at Coquitlam Alliance Church. She has served on multiple committees in our Alliance family of churches. She's been on the National Board of Directors. She is the chairperson for the Human Sexuality Commission. She also chairs the Women in Leadership Committee. And I have had the privilege of working with Marty numerous times on different things. And I really appreciate Marty's perspective, her authenticity, her wisdom, and her approach. And we get to hear from her today. Marty, can I pray for you before you speak? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the ways that you have wired Marty. I thank you for the life experiences that give her place to speak on difficult topics like this. And I thank you for the anointing that's on her. And today, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would use what she has sensed you preparing in her heart, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would enlighten us, that you would bring us understanding, and that you would also bring us conviction. We invite you, Lord Jesus, to do all that you want among us. And we thank you that you reveal things not to condemn, but you reveal to heal. And we pray that you do that among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Marty. Good morning. It's so good to be with you, and uh, great to see Michelle. And I, I, I worked with Keith for a couple years as well, and I remember some of Keith's really great sermons, his warmth, and his smelly runners that were always in his office. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know if you've had that experience of walking into his office, but... Uh, <laughs> Those are his soccer cleats, not the ones he wears around. But um, So we're in this, the middle of this series this morning called Let's Talk, and we're going to talk about something uncomfortable this morning, and, and I'm guaranteed that some of you will feel some emotion around what I'm talking about. But in Canada, on any given night, more than 6,000 women and children are sleeping in shelters because their homes are not safe for them to be there. In 2019, over 107,000 um, police report there were over 107,000 police reports of intimate partner violence, and eight out of ten of those were reported by women. It's estimated that only 30% of incidents are reported. In a recent Justice Department report, Dr. Benjamin Roebuck uh, found that 44% of women and 36% of men in Canada have experienced intimate partner abuse. And not only that, 30% of children live in homes where there is uh, domestic violence. And the report uh, found that in the last year, men were more likely than women to have experienced their partner's jealousy that would isolate them from other people. They're more likely to experience slapping and hitting and kicking. But women were more likely to report sexual assault, being choked, threats to harm, being harassed, and being followed by their partners. These are huge numbers, and the cost to our society um, is great. 
Uh, and, but on an individual level, it's devastating. And these statistics reflect the lives of humans who were created in the image of God, who were created beautifully in God's image. And we were not meant for such treatment. So uh, this is a very personal subject for, for me. I am the granddaughter of a woman who experienced domestic abuse the daughter of a woman who was traumatized by it, and as a result, violence has infiltrated three generations of our family, and it's likely still impacting the fourth. And in my work as a pastor, I've met many women who've experienced violence and emotional abuse at the hands of the men they trusted. And I've sat with them, I've prayed with them, I've sent them to counselors, I've gone to the police station and the court and spent time with their social workers. And I've watched the suffering of these women and their children. I've also seen very few male offenders willing to seek sustained help for their issues with power and control and anger. And I've seen even fewer be able to reestablish mutually healthy relationships. According to Canadian statistics, there are people, men, women, and children, right here now in this church who have experienced domestic abuse. And they, maybe they still are experiencing domestic abuse. They've been cyber-stalked or smacked or gaslighted or bullied or intimidated in their own homes. And these are complicated situations and they're heartbreaking. But domestic abuse is real and it's prevalent in Canada in our homes and it violates God's desire for the way men and women are meant to relate to one another. And I think that we can all agree that domestic abuse, whether it's against children or wives or husbands, is wrong and it should be stopped. But unfortunately, the church has not always been a safe place for victims to come forward. And sometimes the Bible has been used to justify abuse, and most commonly abuse by the male head of the family against women and children. And because of this this morning, I'm going to focus on Christian homes, on power, and why the Bible cannot be used to justify abuse. And I will first look at how scripture uh, what scripture says about power in marriage. I'll describe what abuse looks like, talk about some of the ways the church has failed to protect women, and then talk about how we can do better. So I only have 30 minutes to say what I have to say, and so if I miss something that's important to you, there is a question and answer time afterwards, so please bring that up. So let's pray. Um, so God, we come before you humbly, and we acknowledge that as humans, we so often fail to love those that you have given us to love. And so we come before you, we ask that as the scripture is read, and as my words are spoken, that you will open our hearts to the things your spirit would have us hear. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So in this next section, I'm indebted to our district superintendent, Mark Peters, who co-taught a similar sermon with me at North Shore Alliance. And so some of these thoughts are mine, and uh, some of them I owe to him. So we're going to begin at the beginning. And sometimes in order to understand the way things are, we need to under go back to the beginning and look at the way things were. And from a Christian perspective, the beginning is God's creation, 
And and in the creation stories, God gives us this true vision of what he meant for humanity and how he designed things to work together. So we're going to go back to Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there are two different accounts of God creating humanity. In Genesis 2, Adam was created first, but he was alone, and he needed someone to rescue him from his aloneness. And so God created a woman, and uh, that woman eased his aloneness. Now, this isn't to say that you need to be married to be complete, but that generally speaking, men and women together image God and are meant to work together in this world. And so let's read from Genesis 1. Um, one to three, and if you have your pew Bibles, that's page three, um, or if you, you can go to your phones too. So in Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28, um, I'll start there. Then God said, let us make humankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God, yeah, and then God went on to say that this is very good. So God makes male and female together to reflect God's image. And God also co-commissioned men and women to fill the earth and to steward creation on his behalf. And when we read Genesis 1 and 2, we're meant to be struck by the partnership that God had in mind for men and women. And in the context of marriage, God um, intended the closest of possible human relationships two different persons, one male and one female, join together, and these two become one. And this vision for men and women to be created in God's image and and co-commissioned to steward creation has been God's intent for humanity from the beginning. But what heights have we fallen from, and where are we now? And so if you move into Genesis 3, you'll see an explanation. Why is the world like it is? That's not, why is it not like what God intended? And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve broke relationship with God. And so in doing, they opened the door to sin's presence. And sin's presence affects everything in our life. It distorts and it destructs in every direction. In Genesis 3.16, we see one of the specific ways that sin affects relationships between men and women. And God spoke to Eve. He said this. He said, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And the desire that God spoke of for Eve is for her husband would be distorted. And so a, desire for, a healthy desire for longing and for connection and partnership would be co- corrupted by sin's presence. And so instead of this healthy longing, what we see is one partner looking to the other to meet all their needs for love, for acceptance, for comfort, for safety, and provision. And this distorted, distorted desire in Eve would be matched by a distorted understanding of the partnership in Adam. And when it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, it's saying that he will take advantage of you. He will dominate you. He will subjugate you. 
This is not the way it was supposed to be. And as I said from the beginning, there are men who suffered physical abuse from female partners, but this tends to be less frequent and less severe. In every culture, some men have used their privileged position and physical power to harm and control women. And this kind of violence or domination of man over woman is not God's vision for humanity. From Genesis 3 onward, the Bible describes a predominantly patriarchal society. And the word patriarchal simply means a system or a society in which men are given freedom, authority, and preference on the basis of their gender. But I want to suggest that while the Bible describes a patriarchal society, it doesn't prescribe it. And so in other words, the Bible is describing the way things are, not recommending the way things should be. And I believe that there isn't even a hint of patriarchy in the creation accounts. That comes later in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world and corrupts relationships between men and women. The second text I want to look at this morning is found in Ephesians 5, and it starts in verse 21. And in his letter to the, the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul offers a sober assessment of the world. The world around him that he sees is a fractured world. He's, he sees division between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and masters, children and parents, and men and women. And this was the visible reality that Paul was confronting in Ephesians. But his heart has been captured by his vision of what God the Father is doing through Jesus Christ, the Son, and through the Holy Spirit in the world. And this, Paul saw the dividing wall of hostility coming down between ethnic groups, between men and women, and slaves and masters. And Paul believes that in Jesus alone, humanity can find level ground on which to stand. And it's a beautiful vision if you read the book. In Ephesians 5, 21, uh, to 6-9, Paul encourages the church to think Christianly about all relationships, especially relationships in the household. And one of the very revolutionary things that Paul does is to speak directly to powerless people. He wrote to women and to children and to slaves. And Paul uses a, a format that was familiar in the Greco-Roman world called the household code. And these codes instructed the powerful person in the family on how to control the family so as to maintain order. And order was very important in the Greco-Roman world. And so the proper way for Paul to write this would have been to instruct the male family member to tell their wives, their children, and their slaves to submit and obey. But Paul does something very different. He, he addresses wives and children and slaves as independent moral agents. He talks to them directly. Secondly, as Daryl Johnson points out in his commentary on Ephesians, each of these groups has a direct relationship with Jesus. They don't need to go through their family patriarch to find Jesus. They are directed by Paul to respond to the person in power with the same attitude they have to Jesus, the one who loves them. Now, for the sake of this morning, I'm going to narrow in on Paul's words to husbands. And I'm going to begin in verse 21 and then move to verses 25 to 30. 
So again, that's page 816 in your Pew Bible. So, um, hmm, okay, there we are. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. Okay. So, if, so Paul in verse 21 begins with a word to the entire church. So entire church, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And submission is not a word we like very much. It, it doesn't feel very good. It doesn't feel natural to us. It requires humility and a willingness to prioritize other people. It requires sacrificial love. But as the Holy Spirit fills us, we find ourselves wanting to live for Jesus. We are wanting to give him our attention and our time, our trust, and our love. And submitting to Jesus prepares us to submit to other people. Paul's instruction, offered in the first century patriarchal culture, um, would have, was more than radical. It was unthinkable. Masters mutually submitting to their slaves Parents practicing submission with their children, men submitting to women. And in Ephesians 5.22, Paul speaks about wives submitting to their husbands. But sadly, this verse has been notoriously abused by men who want to control their wives. Remember, before Paul speaks about wives submitting to husbands, he speaks about practicing mutual submission. And so submission isn't something that just wives do. It isn't something that just women do. It's something that all Christians do. And in verse 25, Paul speaks a word to, be, to husbands that can generally be applied to all men. It's true that Paul talks about Jesus being the head of the church and husbands being the head of the, of the wife. But in Greek, this word head, Kephali is not used to describe the leader like we do in English. So it's important to look at the context to determine what does Paul mean by this word head. And when we look at Ephesians 5, we find that Jesus' headship isn't described in terms of power or authority or decision-making. Instead, Jesus loves the church. He lays down his life for the church. He sacrifices everything so that the church might be holy and radiant and beautiful. Husbands are to imitate Christ's self-sacrificial love, the nurturing role of Jesus. And after all Paul reasons, to love your wife in this way is to love yourself. You feed your body and you take care of it, don't you? You can't do otherwise and remain healthy. Similarly, to lovingly serve your wife brings honor and vitality to your own life. So when we look at Jesus, we find that he refused to use power to his own advantage. Philippians 2 talks about that. Whatever power and authority Jesus had, he used it to seek the good of others at his own expense. We can see that on the cross. 
Jesus frequently reminded his disciples that whoever desires greatness must, must be the servant of all. And here in Ephesians 5, Paul defines headship as sacrificial, self-giving love. We are all called to give our life for God and for others. And so I believe the Bible rightly interpreted is good news for women, particularly women who find themselves in controlling and abusive relationships. Violence and intimidation are not the way things are supposed to be. Now, despite this, the church, as I said, has not always been a safe place for women who've experienced abuse. In the church, we place a high priority on marriage and have sometimes failed to listen well and understand the power dynamics in some marriages. In one study done in California, a full two-thirds of women who were experiencing domestic abuse found the church unhelpful. Two-thirds, that's a high percentage. One of my close friends disclosed to a pastor that her husband, who was a church elder, had choked her and was emotionally abusing her. The pastor didn't know how to respond and the husband continued on as an elder. His controlling behavior at home and in church escalated and eventually they were both kicked out of their church and she was left vulnerable and alone with little support around her. And I don't think her story is very unusual. Another woman who I met was highly educated. She was a leader in her church, um, and she shared with me that her husband only had to punch her once. And the fear of it happening again, coupled with his bullying behavior, kept her controlled for years. But her church, they didn't consider one punch enough. They thought she could work it out. And so unless she was hit repeatedly, they didn't consider all the other abuse she experienced as significant. And again, she lost her role in the church and her husband continued on. So abuse researchers, uh, Neil Jacobson and John Gottman highlight this. They say fear is the force that provides batter the ba battering with its power and injuries in turn help sustain the fear. So it's important for the church to understand what abuse looks like so we can improve our response. So I'm gonna take a few minutes to talk about it and then I'll get back to our church's response. So the power and control wheel can be helpful for understanding what abuse might look like. Just checking, good job. So remember, an abusive partner uses power to control. So the first thing you might see is coercion and threats and intimidation. And so th th kind of, um, intimidation, like smashing something on the table, threatening to leave, threatening to hurt you, coercion, getting you to do something you don't want to do. And then we see blaming. This is your fault. And minimizing. It's not a big deal. And the abusive partner pretends to forget what actually occurred. They deny things like promises made to the victim, so she begins to doubt herself. And this is also called gaslighting, which is based on a 1938 play called Gaslight, in, in which a husband attempts to drive his wife uh, crazy by dimming the gas-powered lights and then denying that the light level has changed. And what gaslighting does is it causes a victim to question their own feelings and their instincts and their sanity, and it gives the abuser more power. And once an abuse of power has broken down a victim's ability to trust their own perceptions, the victim is more likely to stay in the abusive relationship. 
Then we have emotional abuse, like name-calling and belittling another person or other tactics that make the victim feel threatened, inferior, ashamed, or degraded. Next, we can see isolation. And in that research I cited, women also do this. So a jealousy that leads to controlling the other person. And so they make sure they don't connect with anyone. They isolate them from other people. This can lead to stalking and cyber stalking. And this often starts in dating relationships. So if you're dating someone, watch out for this. This is a dangerous sign. We also have spiritual abuse. I remember uh, my kids were on a play date with a woman in my church, and my son did something to her son and refused to apologize. My son's very stubborn. And she looked at my son and she said, if you say sorry, Jesus will love you a little bit more. And when she said that, I knew her children were experiencing spiritual abuse because she was using Jesus to coerce and control. And this happens in abusive marriages. It happens, parents do that as well. We also have economic abuse. Sometimes situations involve the control of money. So a woman in my congregation entered into a second marriage. She was financially stable. And as soon as she got married, her husband demanded that she put all her money into his bank accounts. And then when he gained financial control, he began to isolate her. He listened to her phone calls. He tracked when she was with her friends and other controlling behavior. Using children, I've seen this, and it's devastating to the, for the child and the parent, threatening to take the kids away, talking badly about the other parent, uh, keeping information about the kids' secret, controlling even which dentists they see. And then finally, using male privilege. And we can all acknowledge that men have stronger physical strength. They often has, have more access to wealth. They're often seen as more trustworthy. There was an interesting recent study that came out from UBC. They tracked uh, a group of women and men from 19, the 1980s on, and they found out that women in high school with A's had the same career direct trajectory as men who failed high school. That's what male privilege looks like. Now, the power wheel doesn't describe what is coercive power, but it offers an alternative way to use power. So instead of co coercion, threats, and intimidation, how about negotiation? How about sitting down and saying, how can we find what works for you and works for me as we make this decision? Instead of blaming and min minimizing, we see honesty and accountability. Instead of emotional abuse, we see respect. A loving partner treats us with compassion and care. Instead of isolation, trust and support. I trust that you are faithful to me, and I, it's okay, we don't have to spend all our time together. You can have other friends. Instead of spiritual abuse, spiritual empowerment. How can I come alongside you and help you meet Jesus? And instead of economic abuse, economic partnership. How do we share our resources and steward them together? Instead of using children, how do we support one another in our parenting? Even if we're in conflict, how do we put the kids' needs first? And then instead of using male privilege, how do we share responsibility for this relationship and in this relationship? And these qualities listed on this empowering wheel um, exemplify love and trust and submission to one another. And this is the grounding for the kind of marriage that demonstrates the love of Jesus. 
So the church has often failed to call out men who perpetrate this kind of domination in their families. Perhaps, maybe because the church values marriage so much, which is a good thing, we might overlook the quality of what's happening in the marriage and encourage a victim of abuse just to put up with it in order to preserve the marriage. Or sometimes we've supported the wrong thinking that it's the woman's fault. Perhaps if she was more helpful or more submissive, then the man wouldn't be controlling and dominating. But this is a myth. This is she didn't start the problem and she can't stop it. Sometimes women in conservative churches feel a lot of shame about experiencing abuse and they have hidden what happens in homes. And research has found that women in conservative churches are less likely to leave abusive marriages. They're more likely to believe that the abuser will change. They're less likely to get help from their community and they're more likely to believe it is their fault that they have failed as wives, that they weren't able to stop the abuse. And when they do finally leave, the church often judges them for leaving their abusive partner. And in many churches, there's a culture of blaming and shaming the victim, which causes women to exit the Christian community entirely. The first woman I'd work, I worked with who'd experienced abuse, I met, she was from a small town in Saskatchewan. She was a pastor's wife, and when she disclosed that she was being abused to the church elders, they told her to stay with her husband and to submit. She tried that, nothing changed, and she finally left her husband, she left the church, and she left her faith. And I met her when she was starting to re-explore whether Jesus was an option again. So we've judged women for leaving. We've told them to submit to their husbands. We've told them to forgive and go back. And if this has happened to you, I know this church wants to hear your story. I know they want to take responsibility for their mistake. So I encourage you, talk to Michelle, talk to Keith. I've also seen the church judge women for staying in abusive relationships. One such woman I worked with, when she returned to her abusive boyfriend, she received an anonymous letter from some women in the church that was shaming her. You are wasting the church's resources. The pastor helped you, and now you've gone back. It was incredible. I couldn't believe it. And I've just seen the distress of several women who decided to stay with their controlling partners, and they've lost support from their church communities who are trying to help them. And we may have a lot of ideas about what someone should or shouldn't do, but I've come to realize that women know their situation better than anyone else. And these relationships are complex. There's significant losses in leaving, and there's significant losses in staying. These victims don't need our critique, but they need a care, our care, a listening ear, and practical support. And so again, if this is your story, we want to hear from you. We want to do better. I think the church has also failed to hold men accountable for their abuse. We protected them by focusing on women's submission and excusing their behavior. We've allowed their entitlement and sense of superiority over women to go unchecked. We've made marriage relationships into authority contests, who's in charge, which is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches mutual submission. And this is the opposite of what Jesus said. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That is what leadership looks like in the scriptures. 
And as I talked about this earlier, Jesus is a model for men when it comes to how he engaged with women. Jesus led not with power and dominance, but with service. And when, and when we lead this way, this is when we can model what human flourishing is meant to look like. The Christian faith at its best is good news for those who've suffered um, from abuse, and it is good news. Um, there was one study that was interesting that conservative Protestant men who attend church regularly are found to be the least likely group to engage in domestic violence. That is interesting. So come to church, come regularly if you struggle with this. So, so the church should and can be a safer place for women and children and men experiencing abuse. And we need to shift the church culture so abusers actually can come and reach out for help and take responsibility for their actions. We want, to, we want the church to be a safe place for repentance and healing for men and women who struggle with power and control. And for people who operate out of power, it is possible to change. It's possible to address your fears and your failures and to grow in compassion and understanding and to re-enter marriage with a submissive spirit. This takes time. It takes growing in self-knowledge, self-control, and it takes outside accountability and support. So if you're here and you recognize that power and control are an issue for you with your spouse or kids, again, talk to Keith, talk to Michelle later and ask for help, reach out. So how can we as a church do better? I think we can purpose to walk alongside men and women who are suffering. We can live with their ups and downs and ins and outs, knowing it's going to be a long and complicated road. These issues are not solved easily or quickly. And one of the th key things we can do when it comes to interacting with those experiencing domestic abuse is to be non-judgmental, to be a confidential ear. So here's just a few phrases you can use. If you hear about someone's abuse, you didn't deserve this. It's not your fault. If you see something, say something. I'm concerned about you. I'm here to listen. How can I help? It sounds like you're doing the best you can. And people who receive positive responses when they disclose their abuse recover more quickly. They're more likely to work with authorities, access safety reports, uh, safety reports and report violence in the future. And if, there's, if your safety is at risk, the church can help. They can step in. They can help you find safe shelter. They can help you call the police or social workers or whatever kind of support is necessary. Walking alongside abusers will look different. We'll need to refuse to accept their minimizing uh, of their behaviors and the harms they are causing. We need to offer them hope that change is possible and get them help and accountability. But we can't just accept their word when they say things have changed. They need accountability. As followers of abuse, who, followers of Jesus who've experienced abuse, I believe there's hope. I believe that as they receive support and grow in their confidence of the power of the Spirit within them, they can be strengthened in their capacity to resist, resist evil. And, the, and power and control that comes from their spouse. And I've seen this. I've seen that as people take a stand and say no more, things can change in their relationship. And I think as a church, if we can do this well, if we can minister to those who are hurting in our church, 
if we can call out those who are abusing others in our church, we can model to the world what human flourishing looks like in family relationships. And only from this place, when we deal with what's happening inside, can we authentically move out beyond our church and to re reach out to those who are vulnerable and speak prophetically to people who are misusing power. So this was a heavy topic today, um, but I want to say that there is hope in the midst of abuse. In my family, Christ entered into my family. My aunt became a Christian, my mom became a Christian, my grandma became to faith, and they began to experience healing, and they began to experience Jesus. And so things look very different for the fourth and fifth generation in our family because of the church's involvement. My friend who was kicked out of her church, she found a good group of women who meet with her regularly to pray. They pro provide support for her when she continues to live with the consequences of her ex's control and violence and her church's inability to address it. And in my former congregation, I watched one, one woman who left an abusive marriage, and in our church now, she spends time walking with other women who are trying to deal with what's happened to them. I think these are beautiful pictures of the way the church can enter in and bring freedom. I believe that the spirit of Christ is at work in the body of Christ to bring justice and freedom and healing. Let's pray. So Jesus, you are good news. You are a man who is safe. You treated people with respect. You were the servant of all. And Jesus, we acknowledge how hard it is to live mutually submitted to one another. We need you. We need your spirit. We need hope that you can transform us, that you can transform our families. And I want to specifically pray for anyone here who has experienced abuse. May they know your comfort. May they know your healing. May they know your strength. Empower them to stand in the midst of evil. And I also want to pray for those here who struggle with power and control and anger. I pray you will give them courage to seek support and accountability. Jesus, enter in and break that power in their life and enable them to live in a way that's submitted to you and others. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Marty, uh, for leading us. I'm going to just do a few arrangements here. I'm going to move this and get the table, uh, and we're going to start our question and answer time. So uh, for those of you, just one second. Uh, for those of you who are maybe like new to church and you kind of thought you were uh, coming into um, um, a different kind of service and <laughs> made their space for you uh, this morning, we uh, do this in the month of June. I'm just going to grab one more stool over here uh, where we take a topic, uh, something that's important, something we need to talk about, and, uh, uh, and we, we trust the Lord is leading us uh, in these things as a church. And so uh, great to, to be able to lean into this topic, important topic, with alongside Marty. Uh, and so... Uh, we have a slide. I want to just mention a few resources off the top uh, uh, that we, we really want to get uh, in your attention. Um, uh, and so, and before I get there, just let me say, we want to invite your questions, uh, because that's part of our Let's Talk series. Uh, the text number is on there. The phone number is on there. It's an anonymous phone number, so it goes to a service, uh, and then, then it gets uh, uh, kind of looked at and then sent to me. So you can text in your question. We'd love to hear them. 
but four different um, resources we want to let you know about at the outset, just uh, as maybe you're, you're listening online or you're here this morning and you need help uh, and you don't know where to go as a first step. Uh, and as Marty has said, uh, Michelle and I uh, would love to have the conversation with you, but that might not be the help you need right in this immediate moment. Uh, and so a few things uh, for you to know about. First, the Kelowna Women's Shelter uh, is a great organization in our city, uh, and their information is on the screen. Uh, also, the Central Okanagan Elizabeth Fry Society uh, is a, a group that would help with uh, you know, any need uh, in that regard, uh, and their information is there. Also, the Kids Help Phone. Um, uh, kids, uh, important for you to know that, there are, that you have a voice, uh, and so there is a Kids Help Phone there. Uh, you can send a text or a phone number. Uh, and also, we'll want to draw your attention to the Seniors Abuse and Information Line. Uh, this is a, a great organization that, that we have uh, through the BC government, uh, and um, uh, they're very helpful when it comes to uh, senior abuse uh, and whatnot. So wanted to get that uh, there first. Uh, and so um, uh, with, with that being said, uh, Marty, thanks for, uh, for, for leading us. Um, maybe one of the first questions um, that I have or that I have or thinking about as you were speaking. Um, one of, the, one of the, the challenges that is often, uh, or one of the reasons that abuse happens in homes is because of a misplaced anger mm -hmm. uh, or um, uh, uh, an unsanctified anger. Uh, can you speak into that? What are, what are ways that you think uh, uh, the church in general can be helping people with anger issues uh, and how, what, what does the role that ang anger uh, plays in abusive relationships? I think, again, I can only look at my own family, but when things began, when abuse began and it passes down the generations, people are traumatized, they feel out of control, and anger is part of that. And so when people are triggered um, by feeling out of control, they often lash out in anger. And I think anger is a gift of God. Anger tells us when our feet are stepped on. It's like a boundary being crossed. And if we um, use anger as a signal to say, oh, something isn't right here, let me step back and think about it, anger can be really helpful. But if we lash out when we're angry, that's when we hurt other people. And so again, I think anger isn't bad. It's only bad if we don't know what to do with it. And so again, anger signals something's wrong here. Let me step back and think and process. And so when I left home and I'd experienced abuse in my home, I was very angry about what had happened to me. And I began to uh, like seek support and counsel. I began to invite Jesus into my anger so that I could process it and release it. And that was, for me, a very important process, especially before I became a parent. I didn't want to carry what had happened to me into the next generation. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, what, what are some of the key things, uh, and you've kind of mentioned uh, a few of them already, but if you were to be giving us counsel uh, as, as a collective church, as, as the body of Christ, uh, uh, and also the leadership in the church, what are some of the key things that we can do to create a safe environment for people to, uh, to share what they're going through, to come forward with a report of abuse. Well, one of the simple things I did in my last church, which I think was helpful, I just put up a simple pamphlet that was like domestic abuse, or I can't remember what it was titled. And that pamphlet always went, like it disappeared. But on the pamphlet, 
we listed like who to go to if you needed help. We had some counselors' names, like helpline kind of stuff, and then you know come and see a pastor. And I think that that first of all signals like we understand abuse in this church. So some way to communicate, hey, we understand about abuse, and it's safe to come forward. We want to help you. So that would be one thing. I think doing something like you're doing today, like talking about it, so that it normalizes the fact that this is something we can talk about at church. Like we aren't going to keep shame about it from, from being able to address it and come forward. And then I think when you have someone who comes, if you are good at listening, then they will tell other people, like, hey, you're a trust, this is a trustworthy church. Go there if you're experiencing that. So those are three things, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, this, I'm going to read this one that came in. So it says, coming forward uh, for help either as a perpetrator or victim often comes at a great cost. There is a lot of fear and risk in asking for help. Uh, what can you say about MCA's approach to help make people feel safe to ask for help? So this question is directed at, at me. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, essentially what you've, what you've just answered, uh, you know, uh, being able to speak about it um, uh, is a way that we, we can take a step. Uh, also, we reached out to um, a counselor in our midst and asked for, hey, can you recommend some resources, specifically counselors, uh, in this area that would be good to recommend so that Michelle and I and our pastoral team uh, know the right people. Uh, we can help with some pastoral care, uh, but, you know, counseling is important in this issue uh, uh, with this particular thing. And so, uh, and so those are some steps that we've been trying to take as we want to be uh, faithful uh, to be gospel people, uh, people of hope uh, and, uh, and the healing Jesus has. And so, um, so there's that. Um, so, sorry. I'm going to read the next one that's come in here. Um, it says, thank you for highlighting all the ways abuse can be manifested. And, and as a man who's experienced abuse, thank you for acknowledging this. What have you seen work for finding ways to bring healing, support, and introducing Christ into those who were the abusers? I, I don't know. Have you had experience with that? I've had experience. I mean, I think it's hard for people who are abusers to see that in themselves and to acknowledge that. That's my experience. So I think the first step is really a person acknowledging it and taking, like, so until people can do that, you can't go very far. And that's, I have seen very few, and I've mostly worked with women who are abused, so I know mostly a men who are abusers, but I've seen very few. I've worked with a couple couples where both of them were abusing each other and they seem more open to uh, acknowledge it when it's sort of a mutual uh, thing. But I think, yeah, acknowledgement. And then I think support, like support groups. There's one in Vancouver, I don't know if there's one here for men who perpetrated violence. So they go together and then they have someone, a Christian woman mediate it and kind of basically stop them from minimizing. like helping them to see what they've done and how it's impacted their families. And then I think, um, again, I think individual counseling before couple counseling, because it's an individual problem of using power and control. So they need to be able to deal with their own stuff before they can re-enter and engage in healthy counseling for their relationship. Uh, this one says, do you feel that these principles also extend to adult sibling relationships? If so, how would you counsel a sister who feels like their brother is abusing them? Hmm. I think, um, again, if, there's not, if, there, if it's safe, 
so you're not feeling like you're going to get beat up, <laughs> I think it's really good to like address it when it happens. Hey, when you say that to me, like if it's gaslighting or if it's emotional, when you say that to me, it hurts me. And so to, to acknowledge that, I think boundaries are really important. Like I am not going to stay in this room if you speak to me in that way, I will leave. Um, in any abusive relationship, I think those boundaries are really important. So you, uh, you observe what's happening, you refuse to be present to it, and, and you leave. And it leaves then the person who's misbehaving an opportunity to repent and change. Um, especially if you're not living together, that works better. If you're living in the same house, it's very tricky. Okay. Uh, well, another question here. Uh, it says, the expectation and enforcement of secrecy within a family or partnership uh, where there's abuse is often one of the reasons why people don't let someone into what's going on. Uh, mm -hmm. that they need to be... They, they feel the need to be secret. Uh, is there something you would say to a person in the position of being bound by secrecy? I, what I found is often women will come forward for help when they see their children being impacted by the abuse. And so again, I think that shows that they're there, that it's hard for them to defend themselves, but they will actually defend their children. Um, and so I think, again, that, that breaks the secrecy when someone else is at risk by yourself. I don't, yeah, it is a risk, because if you break the secrecy, sometimes you lose control, right? So if you say, you know, my husband threatened me with a gun, like whoever you tell, they're gonna call the police, right? So there is that risk that once the news gets out, things will get out of your control. Um, and I, I can't speak, I think that's where you need to soberly assess, like is the risk worth the benefit? Um, and for most, in most situations, um, if your life is at risk, it is worth, <laughs> is worth the risk. Um, but I, I, secrecy is very challenging. I think thinking that you have to protect the abuser is one of the issues that you need to deal with. And I think that can happen by support from friends or counseling, the idea that the abuser needs to bear the weight of their own decisions, of their own sin, that it's not your job to bear the weight of the abuser's sin. Thank that theology needs to be um, uncovered. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, Marty, when you, we prayed before the service with our team, uh, you prayed that the Lord would just be dismantling evil mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, that that kind of stuck with me and uh, though the all the complexities of bringing something into the light uh, are all there uh, it, in some ways it is the process by which evil is dismantled mm -hmm. uh, and uh, um, uh, and so um, a couple more questions here, uh, and I am uh, mindful of the time. Uh, the first says, uh, can anger be a reaction from fear, and wouldn't it be helpful to address the fear uh, as a question? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the answer yeah. is yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, uh, uh, so uh, the next one says, can you speak to the importance of a joint approach that includes professional help and gospel slash church involvement? Uh, my experience has been that well-meaning people in the church are more harmful than helpful. Yeah, and I all, like for me, I have a counselor that I work with, Karen McCandless-Davies. She's written books. She's well-known in the area, and so I always refer uh, the women who come to me to her for professional counseling. She has treatment, uh, training in trauma treatment, so that they, the counselors can provide a kind of support that I think the church doesn't have. We don't have the kind of expertise. I think what the church can help with, again, some of those questions that I put up there, like 
if we can listen, if we can support, we can, so we had a woman in our church who was basically in hiding, and so the church could provide meals, we could help with rides, we could do things um, because she was isolated, because her situation was dangerous, that, um, that other people couldn't do. So I think for sure the church can provide relational and practical support, um, but not probably expert at support. Okay, great. Uh, can we give Marty a round of applause to uh, show our appreciation? I, I, I trust this morning you can see why I wanted Marty to be here uh, speaking on this. Uh, and, uh, and those two years that we worked together, it was great. I learned so much. Uh, and I'm thankful for the leadership you give to our, uh, not simply our church, uh, but also our Alliance churches across Canada. Uh, we're thank, thankful for you in that. Uh, a few comments uh, here as well. Uh, each in part of our, our Let's Talk series, uh, we want to encourage you to continue the conversation. And so uh, you probably receive one of these brochures uh, on your way uh, uh, in. Uh, and there's some questions there that you can have with your small group, uh, with uh, maybe around the, uh, the kitchen table. And there are a number of resources uh, that Marty had suggested as further reading as well uh, for you to, to do that. Uh, we've also, part of our Let's Talk series, we've been, we've been talking at the end of the service about putting our money where our mouth is. Uh, and uh, um, uh, last year we had a bit of a surplus uh, and the board uh, put some of that money aside to be donated to local organizations uh, that, that need support. Uh, and we thought uh, this week uh, we would wanted to give the $2,000 donation to Kelowna Women's Shelter uh, mm -hmm. here in Kelowna. Just, uh, and on their website they say, Kelowna Women's Shelter is a safe place for refuge for women and their children. And so we thought that was fitting this morning uh, to, to be part of that. Um, uh, and so, uh, Michelle, would you come up here? Michelle's going to give the benediction as we, we close our service. And so maybe we could all stand. Um. I thought it would be good to go back to the verse that we started with today. Because Jesus is the one. He is the one who can bring healing and wholeness. He is the one who can bring answers to our questions. He is the one who can help recreate the way we think and the way we respond to each other. So let's read again Matthew 14, 35 and 36. It says, When the people recognized Jesus, the news of his arrival spread quickly throughout the whole area. And soon people were bringing all their sick to be healed. They begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe, and all who touched him were healed. So Lord Jesus, we pray today that all who touch you will be healed. We pray for perpetrators. We pray for victims. We pray for those of us who have been bystanders or don't know what to do. And we pray, Lord, that just as others brought the sick to you, that we too can bring people to you. Help us be good listeners. Help us be people who can bring hope and healing in a place where there's lots of brokenness. And Lord, we do invite you to help us to do better at representing you in working well together in everything we do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go in God's grace this week and in his peace. <laughs>